Welcome to another edition of the Catholic Connect Podcast. I'm so glad that you took some time to join us here. I hope you're having a great day wherever you may be in our fine universal church. Well, let's start with a quote from one of the great saints of our church, Mother Teresa. She says, We need to find God, and he cannot be found in noise and restlessness. God is a friend of silence. Again, from the great Mother Teresa, St. Teresa of Calcutta, and what a fantastic example she gave us to be charitable, to live a life of love and charity towards our neighbor. And I always think about that uh, the image of Jesus Christ crucified that inspired her so much. The crucifix of Jesus with the words, I thirst. And that's something we can all meditate on for a long, long time. Jesus does thirst for us, for our souls, and to save other souls as well. And that's our job in this world and our vocation, whatever God leads us to. Most of us are going to be married. Some of us will be single. And still some of us will be called to the religious life and the priesthood. And that's why I'm so excited to share this conversation with you. You may remember Tony LaGrange from one of our very first episodes. And believe it or not, I still hear from people that said they've heard every single episode of this podcast. God bless you for that. That is amazing. (laughs) I really appreciate it a lot. Well, this is Tony's son. Brother Raymond, he is studying to become a priest with the Dominicans. And in this world of turmoil and strife and confusion, it's easy to get discouraged, isn't it? But when I see and hear vocation stories, particularly to the religious life and the priesthood, it gives me so much hope. And there's no question that it's so efficacious for the individual to follow God's will in this special way, but it's also so efficacious for the entire church, for the entire body of Christ to see young people commit to Jesus Christ in this way. It's really, truly an inspiration. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Brother Raymond. We'll see you on the other side of the interview, my friends. Praise be Jesus Christ, now and forever. Well, Brother Raymond Maria Lagrange is a young man born and raised here in the Edmonton area. He entered the novitiate for the Dominican Friars in the province of St. Joseph in 2016 and made his first profession the following year. And he made his final profession and diaconal ordination in the spring of 2022. And God willing, maybe ordained a priest here in May 2023. So welcome, Brother Raymond, to the Catholic Canuck podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. It's great to track you down. I've known your family for a long time. And uh, we've had uh, your your dad, Tony, has come on to the podcast already a couple of years ago. We're going to have to track him down again. So it's, it's a real blessing to, to track you down, Brother Raymond, and, and talk about you. So uh, first off, you're back in Alberta as we record this just after Christmas and into the New Year. So how many times have you been able to, to get back into Canada to see your family in the last few years? Yeah, so normally the system we have is uh, while, we're, while we're in studies, we go back once in the summer and once a little bit after Christmas. Now, uh, there were certain medical events uh, gripping the whole world that... Uh, uh, threw a bit of a, a wrench into the mix. So sure. <laughs> from uh, from COVID, basically, I went a year and a half without being able to come home, which you know, isn't isn't too bad, all things considered, considering, you know, what some people had to go through. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, yeah, it's uh, besides that, that couple of years in the middle there, it's been a, it's been a couple of times a year I've made it back. And for all the negatives about the Internet, at least the nice thing is when you are abroad, uh, there is zoom there's uh facetime there's ways that you can still see your family that maybe weren't available a few decades ago yeah made that distance feel a lot further than it probably should be right so well that's great i'm glad you you made it up for a visit i know your family's probably thrilled to to see you again and uh it's nice to have probably a little break uh, from being in the vineyard of the lord uh working hard i'm sure so well let's start about you know it's a it's a great vocation story it's, it's saying yes to christ as we all need to do right brother raymond whatever our vocation is in life. So uh, I already talked a little bit about uh, how I know your family uh, through work and through our church circles here in the Edmonton area, but maybe tell us about the seeds of faith in your life. And I'm guessing they were planted at probably a very early age for you. Yeah. Yeah. My, as, I mean, as long as I can remember, the faith was a very important part of the family and also my life personally. I think when I was, uh, you know, when I was five, six years old, I can remember uh, being annoyed that dad was dragging us off to church. Uh, there's a great story I like to tell this one day he, uh, we, we gone, we were going to a mass in the afternoon, which meant I couldn't finish watching the magic school bus. And 
that was a real tough thing for me at the time. So when we got to mass, I refused to get out of the car. And so my dad told me like, all right, if you get out and go to mass, I'll give you a hundred bucks. And I mean, that was a hundred bags of candy. I mean, that was, that was a lot of money in the nineties. So I, I was pretty excited for that. So I, I went to mass and I was all dutiful at the end. And I came at the end to collect my money. And my dad was telling I'm not going to give you a hundred bucks. So that was, uh, that was how my father got me into the faith, you know? <laughs> but well, even uh, with inflation now, that was a lot of money. So he definitely, oh, uh, yeah. the, I mean, the carrot was, was there. It was attractive, it, right? It was well worth the deal. Yeah. But I think, you know, that, that story's funny. And I think it, it, it kind of makes a little more sense too. When I look at my vocation story uh, a little bit later, I mean, the, the reasons you go into a church, the reasons you get there and the reasons you, you follow after God in the first place aren't necessarily always good reasons or even the best reasons but they get you in the door and then you can find better reasons once you're there mm-hmm. um, that's probably like anything when it comes to reaching out to people and inviting them to the church sometimes we overthink these things don't we brother raymond we just think okay uh okay there's going to be a theological debate a philosophical debate of some sort sometimes we just need to to get people interested enough to come through the doors or, or maybe maybe read a book or listen to uh, a recording, a podcast maybe of some sort, just to make that invitation so people can feel comfortable and then let the Lord take care of the rest, right? Yeah, no, I think with uh, it's it's a huge point of evangelization that we're really, it's it's our own lives and the witness of our own lives that has to evangelize people. And so I think a lot of people want to come up with uh, the one system that'll work, the, the best way to evangelize or something. And so... You know, some guys might say, you know, you got to bring people into the cathedral and let them see all their beautiful art. And other guys say, you know, you, you got to pin them down with the philosophical arguments. And all these things have their merits. But I mean, you know, everybody, every Christian has got his own his own thing, his own, his own way to express his faith and his own talents. And, you know, everybody who might be interested in coming in the door has got their own needs, their own reason they might come in. And so, yeah, if we're, we're trying to overthink something, we're trying to, trying to be the perfect image. Um, be the perfect evangelizer it's not always going to work we just need to be the best christian and kind of accept that uh, the people who see what they need in us might might be interested in coming in their door and if we're not you know i'm not the one that's going to evangelize certain people it's not going to happen um mm-hmm. if they are brought into the church it's going to be by somebody else doing something i would have never thought of and maybe something i don't think is very impressive and you know, as i said it may be uh maybe a bad reason somebody gets in the door but uh you know, whatever it takes. You know, and I think too for parents that are that are concerned about the the spiritual well being of their children, sometimes it's a great prayer to to ask God to send someone to be an example of His <laughs> love to them. And I I grew up in a fantastic home with a mom and dad that loved the Lord, that practiced their Catholic faith, that taught me to pray, that taught me how important it was to go to mass not just Sunday, but as often as possible and, mm-hmm. uh, and have a devotional life. But when I look back, it was actually the, the example of other young people that were on a, a missionary team that really set me on the course to, to make the faith my own, if that makes sense to you, when I was in high school. And I probably would have been a Catholic and, and uh, still chosen the, this life. And I, I sure I love being a Catholic, as I know, as I know you do, just because you're you're fully vested in, in what's going on with your your own vocation in your life. And and uh, but it does help when you have that, uh, I guess, external influences sometimes from members outside of your family or outside of your parents. So I think it's a great uh, prayer for for parents and grandparents to pray for mm-hmm. their children and grandchildren. So you have a big family. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe tell us how having a, you know, a great mom and dad, but also a big family, um, maybe how that kind of uh, kind of helped water the seeds of, uh, of a vocation in your life. Yeah, I think, you know, with any way, no, no matter where you follow Jesus, it's going to involve sacrifice in ways you don't expect. And for me growing up, um, I, I have a younger brother and probably my, my dad might have talked about it on, on the podcast he did with you a couple of years ago, but uh, my little brother Levi is very severely autistic. And so he really needs a constant care, almost like a, like a toddler. And that's just, that's the way it is. And that's the way the family is. And so he was born when I was about nine. Mm-hmm. And so really most of my childhood that I remember, just uh, the rhythm of life, uh, the family centers around looking after Levi and for my parents that meant a lot of late nights with them especially when he was a very young uh 
until he was probably around five or six years old, maybe a little older. We just had, we, we couldn't get his diet right. We couldn't figure out what he needed. So he was always sort of sickly and, and in pain. And so he wasn't sleeping well. He wasn't eating well. And so my parents were just trying to, you know, get what sleep they could and spend their days getting him to eat. And it fascinates me now when I look back on it. So I remember, you know, my my older sister and I, we were as the older kids, we we took a lot of took a lot of on at times. You know, we'd be up at night with them. But once my sister and I started high school, I remember my uh, my my dad especially was very intentional about um, our parents wanted to make sure we got a good sleep, and so they would they would take Levi at the, at night if he wasn't going back to sleep. You know, they were the ones sacrificing their sleep. And now that I look back on it, it's just you know ridiculous that. Um, you know, my dad was trying to run a whole business during the day and, and, and look after a huge family. And like, I, I had high school, so I need my sleep. <laughs> hmm. Um, but that was, you know, it, it, it was just the sacrifice they made. And so my, my dad was uh, just an impressive example of a man who could take that suffering on, um, without really complaining. I don't know if I have a time that, uh, my dad ever sort of got resentful or, you know, it was frustrating. I mean, sure, there are there are frustrations, and you know, uh, he snapped at times. But it, like anybody else, but you could get. Uh, I just never had a sense that it was it was something he couldn't accept. You know, he took this burden on himself and carried it uh, in an exemplary way. And you realize like, that's the the kind of man I wanted to be. And with um, you follow any vocation, you know, maybe you've got your own plans for a career. Or what fun life could be. And I mean, that's fine. But if you're not willing to have that derailed at any moment by the things that you've agreed to love, uh, it's not really going to work. And so I think having, having that constant example of, of, you know, my dad was a man who had basically had to drop everything in order to be a certain kind of father. And I realized that there's, uh, you know, no matter what I do in my life, I had to be willing to drop everything too, for what I loved. And that's not uh it's not like a decision you make and at once and then it's done it's it's something you have to learn over time and every time you confront a new obstacle um you know you gotta ask yourself is this is this too much for me is this where i'm gonna give up and of course having that example makes it a lot easier to say oh no because my father could do something much more difficult than i ever had to do Hmm. and you know he still he still hasn't lost his mind so (laughs) and and how how important is it for to, to have that, uh, just that, um, example from your father, you know, how, how important is it for, for you to see that, uh, that he was a, a man of, of prayer and of action as well. He had a lot going on, but he, but, uh, clearly, you know, going to, to mass and, and having a prayer life was important for him and, and for your mother as well. But, uh, yeah, just having faithful parents, how important of, uh, an influence was that in your life? Yeah. So when I, and there, there are a lot of different times. I, I think of various memories of my childhood. You know, dad always liked to tell stories and they often had, you know, he'd make use of religious imagery. I remember we were uh, one night, you know, we'd set up a tent in the basement and we were doing some kind of pretend camp out thing just for fun. You know, one of these family things. And my dad's telling us a scary story about, uh, you know, oh, you know, your family's out camping and there's a wolf prowling around and he starts making, you know, we're all pretending there's a wolf outside. And, you know, then he's, he says, you know, and then dad holds, you know, a rosary outside the door and he's got one of these you know those cheap glow-in-the-dark rosaries that were going around a bunch of people. he holds yeah. this out the door and we all see this rosary going and oh the wolf wolf runs away and i must have been like five years old at the time and that's like kind of the image i had of the faith is you know mm. there's there's something powerful here and, and something my parents wanted to transmit to me and then it was uh my my parents were very intentional about our education they homeschooled us and my dad mm-hmm. was well, looking back on i think i think he really wanted to be the one you know, as, as the father, the one who did this, but he, he was the one who really took point on, uh, sitting down with us and going through our catechism. Mm. And, you know, we had, uh, this sort of modified Baltimore catechism that I think a, a lot of yeah. homeschooled Catholics might be sort of familiar with where you go through the standard, sure. you know, uh, who created me, God, why did he create me to know him, love him and serve him? You, you go through all the questions. And so I was, I was able to have a lot of the the basics of the faith nailed down from a young age, just from sitting with my father and reading through those books. That's so and, important that fathers do that yeah. and mothers too, but really in the, in the role of, uh, of a father and in your house, you need to be a, a spiritual leader. 
And for the moms out there, pray for your husbands that they can, that you can encourage them in their faith and encourage them to be leaders and, and uh, have that, uh, that holy masculinity, something like St. Joseph had. And, and, uh, you know, there's that quiet leadership, but there's also a time when you need to, to sit down and, and share the faith. And that's really interesting. You bring up the Baltimore catechism. I still bring yeah. that up to a lot of people. That's what I read to our children love, as well. It's a gem, it's just, man. I love uh, that thing. Yeah. It's so, it's like, uh, you know, we talk about reinventing the wheel. Sometimes you see, you know, people in our church that yeah. are trying to, they come up with these crazy stories and crazy theology and they're trying to change things or model. It's like, let's get back to basics here. Let's look at the catechism. One thing I really liked about the Baltimore catechism, I still like it is there's a lot of imagery too, right? It's, it kind of reads, it reads as the catechism, but it also has a little bit of a kind of a comic book feel to it too, because yeah. there's still images in on the, the catechism that I was read to me when I was a kid by my parents that I still remember. You know, something like confession and having uh, the face of Jesus right behind the priest was always something very powerful to me, right? Or the road to eternal life, you know, it's the wide pavement that goes to to perdition and this big dragon, and it's that narrow road that goes to the gate of heaven, right? And all these things, they mean something to kids, and and you brought up imagery of a a glow-in-the-dark rosary, right? It's uh, a big bad wolf. Like, it it means something (laughs) to kids, and it means something to adults too, doesn't it, Brother Raymond? Yeah. And then, you know, here's uh, another story for mothers that my my mom was real savvy about these kinds of things. And she was a she was a bit of a used book junkie. She was always like that. There's a a really good used bookstore in St. Albert. We get like a stack of books for a dollar. And uh, she loved this place. And so she was, I'm sure, number one customer. And we we went there a lot when I was young. And uh, she she liked to pick up a lot of religious books. You know, when she saw them there, she'd grab them. She told me she'd there's even certain books she would she would buy multiple copies to give away um, but so we we had a pretty well stocked library at home and when i was maybe 14 15 well once i got into high school especially um you know when i was older i started to see other people who you know weren't uh religious at all or didn't take their faith all that seriously i, I kind of wanted to embrace it more almost as you know it became my identity now i'm the religious mm-hmm. guy Um, But I was also naturally very curious and I I started to ask a lot more questions and I think my mom kind of saw something. And so she, uh, she started writing her collection and, you know, okay, here's, here's a book on an introduction to theology, read this. And, you know, okay. A few days later, like, all right, mom, I got that. All right. Here's, here's another one on philosophy, read this. And so, uh, yeah, I, uh, it, it, it's kind of funny to look back on, but I, I was reading when I was in high school books that were really written for, you know, like, college students studying philosophy or people who are really seriously into apologetics and so forth. And um, I normally probably wouldn't have encountered them, but my mom sort of saw that I might be interested and willing to sit through it. And I mean, I read books I didn't even understand. Um, You know, it's sort of like when you give a child a picture book and you just want to, at least you'll learn how to to turn the pages. Mm -hmm. I I read Jacques Maritain's Introduction to Philosophy, where he explains why Tome is an excellent realist philosophy. And and a 16-year-old me was just like... (laughs) Yeah, sure. Let's let's do it. Let's do that. I don't mm-hmm. really understand. Uh, you know, there's there's apparently some kind of difference between what and that which that seemed to come up in a lot of charts. I didn't really get it at the time, but uh, it seemed pretty compelling. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I wanted to learn about the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas. And you know, years after reading a lot of these books, my mom left me. Uh, you know, I wound up in the Dominican Order, uh, sort of as a full time student of the thought of Saint Thomas. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's funny. It's it, a lot of that has to do just with my mom. She uh, she saw something good in me and started throwing books at it. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So so when did you start feeling that there was maybe um, uh, a religious vocation in your future? When when did that? Uh, what age did that sort of come onto your heart? Or or maybe it wasn't a specific moment, but maybe just a, a series of of events that maybe led to to you saying, "Maybe I have a religious call or a religious vocation call," I should say. Oh yeah, no, there there definitely was a moment because uh, when I was when I was young, probably around ten or eleven, um, my dad was a chemist, and so I got really interested in sciences, and I thought it would be very fun to win a Nobel Prize in chemistry or physics. I wasn't picky, mm-hmm. and I knew there was this uh, this idea that we need more vocations, we need more priests. But uh, I thought, well, I have this other thing I love. I want to be a great scientist, so like I'm not I'm not too interested. Um, uh, I remember I had a, a friend who was very, he, he didn't end up becoming a priest, but he was, uh, when we were about 12, 13 years old, he was uh, thinking very seriously about the priesthood and it sort of 
I, I always thought of the, you know, this is a good thing, but this is for other people. This, you know, this, this isn't my vocation. Um, I want to be a great scientist. But, you know, once I got into high school, I started studying the faith more seriously. I realized this is just, this is interesting in the way that studying chemistry and physics was interesting to me when I was, you know, 12, 13, getting into high school. And so I, I started to, I think, rethink uh, just the way I viewed myself. I think before that, I thought of myself as kind of a science nerd. But now I thought of myself as, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really more interested in getting to the, to the deepest things about reality. Because uh, the science is only really, they, they give you the surface appearances. But if you want to get to the bottom of things, you need to look through philosophy and theology. Um, and, of course, my mom's uh, reading selections really helped with that. But I was reading, this was in uh, summer after I was in grade 11. Um, I'd managed to get this very good uh, sort of summer internship working in cell biology through this uh, program that ran out of the University of Alberta. And, you know, that at the time was very exciting to me. I was thinking about maybe going into the sciences and, um, you know, studying molecular biology and being able to do some. I mean, the, I didn't necessarily do great work on it, but it was it was exciting to, you know, be in a real lab and, and spill things by accident when I was 16, you know. And but that summer I was reading uh, in uh, A Life of Christ by Fulton Sheen, which, of course, my mom had given to me. And you know, I was reading this while you know, I'm in my coffee breaks and whatnot, or while I was waiting for experiments to go while I was working there. And so one weekend, I think it was out, uh, we, out at a camp or something, and I, I remember sitting in a tent, I believe it was, when I was reading through it. And I got to the point where uh, he, he explains the episode where Jesus sees the rich young man, and the young man says, what must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you'll follow the commandments. And then you will be perfect. And then and says, well, I already do this. What, what more can I do? What do I need to do to be perfect? And God says to him, you know, leave everything behind, give your possessions to the poor and follow me. And Fulton Sheen explains that this is, this is a religious vocation that Jesus offers to this man. And that a religious vocation isn't necessarily, it's not something everybody has to do. Um, you know, you're not you're not a bad Christian if you don't follow a religious vocation. It's it's just an invitation for some who want to be close to God in a special way. And you know, if you it's 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 a, it's it's a vocation, and if God wants to give you that life, and if you want that life, uh, it's available. And as I read that, I realized that I wanted that vocation. Um, and of course as a 16 year old, it's, these things aren't always clear. I had to, it just, it, it, it took a few years of kind of beating around the bush and wand, wondering about it and what can I really do this and, you know, dragging my feet and well, okay, I'll go check out the seminary, but then I got all these exams and whatnot. And, um, so I wasn't, wasn't that necessarily that I was sold on it from that moment, but, uh, looking back on it, that was a sort of a moment where it was, it's fairly obvious to me now that there were, there was no turning back. Hmm. Um, so it's difficult yeah, well, for I, young people, isn't it? Brother Raymond. Now it's, there's, there's so much noise in this world. There's so much, uh, you know, think about electronics and TV computer time. Um, you know, a lot of kids have cell phones at such a young age. It's just, uh, it's, it's crazy. Right. And, uh, I think there's a lot of, you know, I think there's, well, I think there's a lot of religious vocations out there too. I think people are getting called. I also think that there's a lot of vocations, uh, you know, even just to, to, to being married or just to, but it's, it's the holy life. It's the, it's the vocation that God is, is, is calling you to, but there's so much noise out there. And I think it starts with, uh, with purity and with wisdom. And, uh, a lot of young people are, are falling off that path because they're just, there's no time to be really silent or quiet. Uh, you said, you know, you found this by reading a book. How many kids read books nowadays? Yeah. Uh, you know, just, just a good religious book and just having that silence reading and, uh, and contemplating, you know, what God's trying to tell them, whether that's through scripture or, or through the lives of, uh, a great saint, uh, that venerable Bishop Sheen will uh, no doubt be one day. Um, but, uh, what do you, what do you tell, you know, maybe young people that are in their teens or even young adults, uh, just to encourage them to maybe find that quiet time. How can they 
kind of separate themselves from the world to find that time with God? Yeah. In my sense with these things is you make time and you make space in your life for the things you love. And so if you have just this project that, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to set aside some time to try to be quiet and to pray that time may not be very significant or well used. And it may just not really happen unless there's something behind it. So I'm always interested in trying to communicate to young people, you know, the gospel really does promise something and Jesus is really promising something to us. And I, it's, it's my hope that young people kind of pick that up and see that, yeah, there, there is something more than all the noise that's worth looking into. And I, I, I really do think that the only way to, to get that quiet time into people's lives is to convince young people that there is something worth loving. And I think many of them have a sense of that because we all have a, a sense of a deeper calling. Nobody wants to spend their life by staring down a screen. And I think deep down, everybody knows that. And so it's a matter of uh, providing a roadmap for how that's done, uh, providing an example of, you know, what a, what a Christian life looks like. Um, being an example of, I mean, my father never, uh, he never spent time watching TV or playing video games or on his phone to the exclusion of the family. I mean, sure, you know, he had, he had, business calls and so forth to do but i mean when you're when you're a kid you understand that that's you know he's providing for the family if he's got to be at work but um yeah i remember if my dad was watching a movie it was always sort of a. it was either he's watching the movie with a family or he was going to get about 10 minutes into the movie before he was distracted hmm. and i think that kind of example of my father uh did did more to help me make that quiet time hmm. uh just by being a by demonstrating to me that there's there's something more and demonstrating that in his own life. So I think, yeah, really that, that witness of our own lives. Uh, can we be a witness to living in quiet, not needing constant stimulation? Can we be a witness to being present to others no matter what? I think I think that's a way to, to communicate the possibility of a life that has silence in it. No, that's... Uh... That's a, that's a great witness and something that I'm going to take to heart too, because I know even sometimes in my own life when I'm with my kids or, you know, even sometimes when we're with our other family members or our friends, there's a time for you to be present to them and to, to put aside the distractions, whether that's your, that's your phone or something else and, and mm -hmm. just to be present to them and, and not, uh, not have that idle time, that wasting, uh, you know, the, uh, the bad time, you know, there's uh, there's idle time in front of the blessed sacrament or at church. Uh, that's very valuable, but uh, uh, the stuff of the world is something that we can certainly put behind. I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, the charism of, of being a Dominican. I was real blessed when I was a kid to be exposed to some orders of priests and religious that were outside of the diocese. Of course, operating within the diocese of uh, in, in Alberta, whether it was Edmonton or St. Paul, but just the different charisms, and that probably makes sense to you. I hope it makes sense to our listeners, too. When I was on a missionary team, I joined the, uh, I went on some various missions with the, the Oblates of Mary Immaculate. Okay. So it was yeah. interesting to see what they, what their mission was, uh, particularly to remote uh, Northern communities and Northwest territories in Alberta, of course, particularly the First Nations communities, but we went to many towns and uh, they gave missions and, and, um, and confession was, was really important uh, to them, venerating the, the image of Jesus Christ, uh, praying the rosary. Uh, it was it was fantastic. So mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about uh, what attracted you to um, to join uh, the Dominicans and to maybe look for something outside of the diocese because there's you know people get called to to be mm -hmm. priests or or religious. Uh, typically they think oh it's going to be something within my own diocese. But uh, I guess what attracted you to look at something outside the diocese and with a, a particular order? Yeah. So I think most. A lot of vocations directors from religious orders, and I think this is good advice, say that, you know, if you're if you're a young man thinking of the priesthood, you really should look first to your diocese. That's uh, I know that's 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 the basis. And that's the local church. And that was advice I was given early on. And so I remember when I uh, when I was my first year in university, I went to visit the St. Joseph Seminary in Edmonton. 
And I really, I love that weekend there. I love the community I saw. These young guys were on fire for the faith. Um, they were into it. They were smart. They, uh, they were alive. And there, there was a real brotherhood there. And that was, that was something I wanted on, on many levels, both yeah, humanly and, and spiritually. But I also just didn't really feel a great attraction to the life of a diocesan priest, you know, living with myself or one other guy uh, running a parish, uh, being a pastor. It's, it's a very intense administrative job that uh, requires certain skills. And I, I was always kind of a nerd. You know, I, just, I, I liked reading books. And now, nowadays, when I look back on it, you know, those kinds of things matter less than I thought. But that's what sort of drew me to think, well, is there a religious order where study will be a big part of my life and where I'm not necessarily just going to immediately be, be stovepiped into, uh, you know, preparing to be a pastor for, for many decades. And at the same time, I mentioned I was reading uh, about philosophy and theology, and I got interested in the theology of St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, when I was at the university, I took some classes through St. Joseph's College, and I started studying uh, Thomas's thought more carefully. And I was drawn into that world. And St. Thomas Aquinas, of course, is a Dominican friar from the 13th century. And still probably the, the most influential theologian in the church since the time of the fathers. And so it, it was in many ways a natural fit. Uh, the Dominicans, uh, a group that, you know, the, the, it is the order of the, the theologian in who who really got me hooked on theology, who really got me interested in the faith. Uh, it was an order where study is a major part of our life uh, and studying and preaching and teaching and all these things. Uh, but it was also, it's also an order with uh, connection. I think really any religious order you'll see will have a, a pastoral connection to the people. Even a uh, contemplative monastery will, where, where you know, the monks never leave. Uh, there's still a great love for the people there. And I think having an idea that, you know, I want to be, be pastorally available to the people, so I shouldn't be a contemplative monk. I think that's wrongheaded. But at the time, uh, I wouldn't have thought of that. Uh, I, I just became interested in an order with uh, where, where I was going to be able to work with the people. So I, but then once I got in touch with uh, the vocations director for the Dominicans, he started sending me all this info on Dominican saints, giving me book recommendations. So I started to read about our saints, particularly I read more in the life of Thomas Aquinas. I read about our founder, St. Dominic, and also early on about one of our, our great mystics, St. Catherine of Siena, who was kind of a, a lay Dominican. Uh, so she was with, uh, with a group of lay people who had agreed to be celibate for their life, who attached themselves to the order to do penance for the good of the church. And the witness of those three saints really impressed me. And I think more than anything else, that's, the, uh, that's why I became a Dominican and why I stuck around. There are, there are lots of different ways to be a Dominican, uh, Dominican friar. Uh, some guys are teachers, some guys are pastors, some guys are at seminaries, some guys are running campus ministries at universities. Some guys are doing various internal ministries, uh, you know, administrative things within the order and so forth. Uh, there, are, there are really all kinds of jobs. And when you join a religious order, you promise obedience and you promise you'll be willing to take on whatever kind of job. And I don't think in, in hindsight, it's necessarily all that important to say, this is a religious order that does the things I want to do. Um, if that gets you attracted, that gets you in the door. I mean, that's good and that's that's fine. And and it, it's it's a good thing to pursue that. But what's most important, I think, is that this is, you know, I want to be a son of St. Dominic. I don't want to be a brother of St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Catherine of Siena. Mm -hmm. uh, I want the, the family, the fellowship and the faith that they have. I want to follow in their footsteps. And that may look a lot of different ways externally. I may take on all kinds of jobs, including maybe jobs that I don't find particularly fulfilling or never would have thought of. Um, but that's part of our sanctification. Mm. And so... Yeah, uh, yeah. More than anything else, I think it's, it's the witness of those Dominican saints that brought me into the order and that gave me the reason to stay. What is the, uh, if any, is there a Dominican presence in Canada? 
because your travels took you to, or at least currently have you in Washington, D.C., and I think kind of took you to the northeast of the United States. But uh, uh, is there a presence of Dominicans in Canada right now? Yeah. So pretty much the whole world is split up uh, by the order into different territories, and you know, every province has its territory, and there are also you know missions attached to provinces. Um, mm-hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's it's actively filled. So there is a Canadian province that has territory over all of Canada, as well as missions in Rwanda and Burundi. Mm-hmm. But it's mostly French speaking. It's really uh, people will call it the Quebec province, uh, typically. Okay. And traditionally, that's that's what it was. It was the it was the French Catholic Quebec province. You know, it was it was a it was a booming operation back when uh, when the church was booming in Quebec. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of great things were coming out of there. But uh, again, Quebec is almost as far away from me as Washington, D.C. Um, and I don't speak French. Right. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I, I ended up with uh, with the order in Washington, D.C. Um, the, the Canadian province also has a house in Vancouver now. And, you know, they, they got a few other places in, in Ontario. But, yeah, really it is... Uh, I went with a province that was slightly further away in, in a different country, which is its own inconvenience, but nonetheless English speaking. So you've been there for several years now. So in addition to, of course, studying for uh, to to join the to be a priest, uh, there's other tasks that you're doing, some other acts of uh, service as well. So um, maybe tell us a little bit about that. Uh, in addition to the studies, what else do you do you do as a part of your mission as a Dominican? Yeah. So while we're in studies. Um, we take we have summer assignments we we'll go out for about eight or ten weeks uh to a parish to do whatever work is available in the area so i've done a couple of summers working in soup kitchens mm-hmm. i did one summer we had because of covid we couldn't leave so we kind of stayed around the house and tried to pick up what we could so i was doing some work with just uh staying in touch with some of our donors and and uh kind of providing some outreach to them especially uh right after covid we wanted to reach out to people and uh, just people were lonely, you know, and we'll mm. we'll spend time on the phones. Uh, next, some, another summer, I spent learning Spanish. And because of that, I'm able now to do some ministry in Spanish on the side. So then during the academic year, of course, we have different assignments uh, where we do a few hours a week uh, while we're in full-time studies. And so for the last couple of years, I've been working at a Spanish-speaking mission in southern or northern Maryland. Um, it's about, I mean, so Washington, D.C. is kind of surrounded by Maryland and Virginia. Uh, so it's about a, you know, 45 minute drive from my house. So it's not, it's not to say that it's in another state isn't to say, uh, you know, I've, I'm, I'm hitting the road all the time. But it's, uh, yeah, it's a little mission that is basically the Spanish speaking outreach uh, in that part of town. So in the United States, because there are so many Spanish speakers coming in, uh, it's pretty common for a parish to have um, a Spanish mass maybe once a week or once or twice a month. But this is a mission where, uh, you know, it, it's it's attached to a parish, but in a different location. And they've just got all all Spanish masses, all Spanish ministry all the time. And so it's, uh, it's, it's a major hub and it's also connected to a Catholic charities building. And so, of course, a lot of immigrants who are coming in will pass through there and get involved with the mission. So in because of that, I've been able to do a ministry where uh, you know I've we're helping helping people out with just some basic human things, uh, giving them community and so forth and a landing place. Um, but also I've been able to work on my Spanish, which is really important in the US right now because so much of the church is Spanish speaking. Um, so many people are, you know, a first or second generation born, and you find a lot of people who you know, they're, they're comfortable in English, but it isn't great. And a lot of people have trouble getting the sacraments because, you know, they, they can't find a Spanish-speaking priest to hear their confessions. Mm. So that's, that's been important to me. So I've you know, worked hard on my Spanish. And then, yeah, I've had a couple of years now at the, this mission. So I spent a year helping teach an RCIA class. And this last year, I've been teaching more classes, doing sick visits, um, helping a little bit with marriage prep for a few couples. And spending a lot of weekends at masses. Uh, I've been able to, you know, uh, give homilies in Spanish, um, you know, help out with major things at Christmas and Easter. 
So it's been a blast. Um, it's definitely a learning experience because uh, it's in a different language and they got a different word for everything, you know. But it's uh, it's a really excellent ministry, and you this it's a really faithful community, and God is really alive there. And so it's it's been a blessing, and I've been beneficiary of a lot of prayers of a really a very fervent group of people. Well, it sounds like the adventure of being a Catholic and a, and a believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, it's something always new around the corner, but the grace of God follows you uh, through those uh, those corners and those tight turns uh, yeah. to uh, to nourish you and help you on that uh, that road in your vocation. Through, through the last several years, have you noticed anything about um, maybe the church in the in the area that you're serving around Washington, D.C., to the needs of the church, say, in Alberta or in Canada? Or a lot of the the issues, the the problems, you know. Of course, we see that you know mass attendance is down. The real presence, the belief in the real presence of the Eucharist, is lagging significantly. Uh, do you see some of the same issues in kind of the northeast of the United States as you'd see in Canada, or uh, do you have any any kind of observations that you've noticed over the last couple of years? Yeah, I think what I've found is there's just so much regional variation. Yeah, so it's a little bit hard to say. So mm-hmm. say the the, dioc- the Archdiocese of Washington, uh, in Washington, D.C., it's a very, very strong archdiocese. They've got a lot of clergy. So usually most, most parishes, there are at least a couple of guys living there. Um, they, they have men to fill the positions for the most part. Uh, whereas if you go a little bit further northeast, um, and part of it is just the, the demographics of where people are moving in and where people are moving out. Um, but yeah, a lot of places in Northeast parishes are closing down or combining. It's it's hard to get all the manpower. Um, and the Midwest is another area very similar to here in some ways. But I think I think the Midwest U.S. has they've done a good job in a lot of regions of having a a strong faith with an appeal to the masses. So you get uh, a lot of ordinary people uh, attending mass very faithfully in in large numbers and uh so i think in on the whole it's maybe not too too different from what we see in alberta uh institutionally uh some places stronger more vocations more mass attendance um other places a little bit weaker um catechesis uh, again it depends a little bit because the catholic school system is usually private Whereas, you know, and of course in Alberta, it's public. Uh, it's a little bit different. Some places that there, there may be Catholic schools that, you know, they kind of have a, a historical connection to the faith, but it's not necessarily the most important thing to them. You know, other Catholic schools are run by Dominican sisters who are very uh, intentional about passing the faith on. And so you'll find some people who are very well catechized, uh, had, a, had a very good Catholic education, other people not so much. Um, depending on where you go, whereas I think it's a little bit more uniform in Alberta because you know you have basically the 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 schools do a bit of work, but a lot of it just depends on on what comes to the family. Um, but yeah, really culturally, <clears throat> the kind of people you might meet in a church, I don't think it's very different. You know, I don't think any of us would feel feel out of place. One thing I have noticed, and we're seeing it a little bit more here, is just that people are very intentional about choosing parishes. I don't think that was the case so much when I was a little kid. Now, more and more, and you, you there, you know, people kind of line up their options. Well, okay, I can go to, you know, this is the parish where there are a lot of young families. This is the parish where the young adults. This is the parish that has the Latin mass. Um, and, and, you know, people weigh their options, and then they're willing to drive an hour and a half every week to go to that parish. I think there's a lot of our Dominican parishes uh, are a bit like that. People know who we are and they'll, they'll kind of come in from around to, to, to hear our preaching to, or just because they've lived somewhere else with a Dominican parish and they know that. Um, so I think that that can add a little bit of a different character because I've, I mean, I, I spent last summer at a parish, which is just kind of a homeschooling Mecca. I mean, maybe I would guess about half the kids there were homeschooled. And the rest were kind of culturally very similar as far as people who took their children's Catholic education very seriously. And so you have these very uh, highly, highly, very faithful families with a lot of kids. 
so I, you know, I've seen crazy youth group parties, um, where you just get, you know, every family sends in, you know, three or four kids who are just going to the kind of the junior high school group. And then if you kind of have more family events, you'll see, you know, the party, uh, where, you know, every family comes in with six or eight kids and all of a sudden there's just 500 children running around, you know, that's, that's one extreme of a parish you might end up in, um, where, where all the big families come together. Uh, so, but, but of course not every parish is like that. So it, it really, I don't know if that, uh, kind of helps answer your question, but at least maybe mm -hmm. it gives some data that there's, there's, there's a lot of variation, some really good things happening in the church, um, in the U S and some struggles in other places, but I think on the whole, uh, the cast of characters is familiar. Yeah, that's good to hear too. I mean, uh, you know, sometimes we get kind of, uh, you know, stuck in the mud about all the negative things in the church. And mm -hmm. whereas, you know, if we go to a, a parish level and, and, a, and a community level, we see that there are, there are some good things. There are some, some bright lights and, and it's reassuring to know that the God, that God's not going to leave uh, his people alone. There's always going to mm -hmm. be that, uh, that light of vocation and family life and, uh, all those things to help us along the road to eternal life. Uh, what what would you like from you know someone like myself or someone or our listeners that are that are tuning in to to hear uh, Brother Raymond speak? You're getting close to being ordained to the priesthood, but you're not there quite yet. So mm -hmm. what what would you like from us? I mean, prayer is is obviously probably what you're going to answer, but uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do you need from the faithful and, and yeah, kind of what's going through your mind here the next, uh, you know, five months or so? Yeah. Um, a prayer of course was the first thing I was going to say, but you preempted me. <laughs> um, but it, it really does matter to us. I think, you know, to put it in perspective, there are, you know, it's like in any vocation, uh, people have struggles, people fall away. You'll see it in, in families and I'm sure, you know, a lot of listeners have, have known priests that have maybe fallen away or felt unable to do the ministry and so forth. And, you know, this is, uh, this is a task where we rely on supernatural grace. We rely on God's providence. We rely on the gift of perseverance. And that's not going to become by, by some technique we perfect or by our own efforts. It's going to come by the prayers of the faithful, the prayers of the church that we serve. And so that those prayers matter more perhaps than you think, because we all, you know, we, it's easy to talk about, oh, yes, nobody's really worthy to be a priest. It's, it's God who calls, God who gives us what we need. Um, but uh, my time of formation has taught me that that really is true. And so the prayer really does matter. I think otherwise, um, yeah, what else do we need? It's, I, I really think more than anything else, what's, what's helped me in my time preparing for ordination is to see the faith alive in others, uh, to see parents who want to transmit the faith to their kids, uh, to see uh, older people praying, praying hard, especially for their own families. Uh, people who, you know, they, they have that witness of a long life in service to the faith. Uh, and then of course, young people who are embarking on where they, they're looking ahead and their, their plans for the life always have their faith as a part. And that, that's a major source of encouragement for all of us who are working in ministry. And even if it's not in the fruits of our own work, um, it tells us that there, there's something worthwhile here. A big thank you again to Brother Raymond for joining us on this episode of the Catholic Connect podcast. And let's really make sure we pray for Brother Raymond, uh, especially during this time as he gets closer to being ordained to the priesthood and we'll make sure we keep you updated on how that's going for brother Raymond. And eventually I'd like to have him on one day when he becomes a priest. So continue to pray for him and all the Dominicans and all young people that are discerning a vocation. And uh, especially in this day and age, this world, all we see is craziness out there, isn't it? It's just amazing uh, what we're witnessing in this world right now. And we really need to keep uh, the light of Jesus Christ, the cross of Jesus Christ in front of us. And to live that sacramental life, it's just so important right now. And to keep focused on not only praying for ourselves and making sure we're walking in a right relationship with Christ, but also offering sacrifices, uh, making reparation, and praying for others as well in their journey towards heaven and in their respective vocation in their lives.
Well, thanks for listening to the Catholic Canuck podcast, everyone. And a reminder, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Drop me a line anytime. Send me an email. Send me a message through Messenger. Uh, always love to hear from our listeners and our, our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world. And if you're not a Catholic and no one's ever invited you, well, I'm inviting you to join our ranks, to join the one church that Jesus Christ founded, and it continues right through until this day. And even though through our ups and downs, the imperfections of human beings that belong in our church, the Catholic Church is beautiful, a great gift that Jesus gave to us. Uh, we are his bride, and Jesus is the groom, and he's coming again soon, coming again very soon, and we've got to be ready to see Jesus when he comes and the great thing about being a Catholic, the, the, my very favorite thing, is that we can receive Jesus in the Eucharist. Body, blood, soul, and divinity. It's one of the great mysteries of our faith, but it is the great truth of our faith, receiving Jesus, the truth personified. What an amazing, what an amazing faith that we have, an amazing church that we have. And I'm inviting you to join us. Join us in this battle, the only battle that really matters, and that is the battle between good and evil, between virtue and vice, between Jesus and the evil one, between the church and the anti-church. But we belong in the fold, and Jesus is the good shepherd. So come join us on this journey. And for us Catholics out there, we know what we've got to do to be that light, that beacon of light to the rest of the world that so urgently needs authenticity and needs real Catholics to step up to the plate to show them who Jesus Christ is. He is the way, the truth, and the life. We've got to go to confession at least three times every year. Every Lent, every Advent, and any time you're in a state of mortal sin, don't even spend a second of your life there. Thanks for listening to the podcast, everyone. God bless, and we'll chat with you very soon.